0: Alright, so we're in Philippians 4. Um, do you remember last week's message, anybody? I'll, I'll, I'll remind you of it in my intro so you know where we're going with this. Oh Lord, we do ask for your favor as we open up your word today and that we minister to hearts and lives. who made this. these words penned 2,000 years ago come to life and may we find them enriching our lives today enrich our spiritual lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, as you hopefully recall, we began a two-part series called Six Essential Marks of the Christian Life. And what we're doing is Paul's winding down his letter, the book of Philippians, to the very end. He's in chapter 4. He's almost done. After he finishes verse 9, he really only is going to speak about the gift that they sent him, and then he's going to sign off. He's going to give the salutations. So verses 4 through 9 are really the closing exhortations of the Apostle to the Philippian Church. And what he does here is he starts hammering home in rapid-fire succession six commands. These are imperatives in the Greek, which means they come with the force of a command, not options or not suggestions. And we look at four of the six essential marks last week, joy, humility, faith, and prayer. Joy, rejoice in the Lord always. Humility, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Faith, be anxious for nothing. Prayer, let your requests be made known to God. And then there's a promise at the end of those four commands. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But there's still two more commands to come. One in verse 8 and one in verse 9. In verse 8, the command has to do with meditation. And verse 9, the command has to do with obedience. And so we want to look at those two aspects of the Christian life today meditation and obedience. And this is Ephesians. No, no, not Ephesians, it's Philippians. Philippians, I'm sorry. Chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. So let's look at verse 8, first of all. He says here in verse 8 Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And you might be wondering why I believe that verse 8 has to do with meditation. Well, the word meditation isn't found in verse 8. It's not to be found there. But there is another word that will help us here. In the New American Standard Version, it's the word dwell dwell on these things the King James says think on these things the word literally means to dwell or to think about or to ponder or to consider and really that's what meditation is it's thinking deeply about God's truth now I understand if you have in your mind Eastern meditation then it's not going to make any sense what I'm about to say Because in Eastern meditation, most of the time, the goal is to not think about anything. Right? You're supposed to empty your mind and try to rid your mind of all thoughts. Um, Or it's about focusing on your breathing or repeating a mantra over and over to reach a heightened level of spiritual awareness. But that's not biblical meditation. That's Eastern meditation. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. It's filling your mind. It's filling your mind, not with any thoughts, but on God's thoughts, on God's truth. So, when you read your Bible, it's like taking a a cup of water, putting it in the microwave for a minute and a half, it comes out boiling hot, you take a teabag and you drop it in and you pull it right out. That's reading the Bible. Meditation is like taking that teabag and putting it in that cup of hot water and letting it sit there for five to seven minutes until so all of the rich flavor of the tea bag is extracted and it permeates that whole cup. See, meditation is, is deep thinking on the Word of God. You can't do that by just skimming through the Bible quickly and just reading it quickly. And, and the thing that I think is so important for us to realize is that we live in a day and age in which meditation is extremely difficult. If you lived in the year 1872, let's try to go back in America in 1872. What was life like? What kind of media was taking place in 1872? You had one source of media, really, the newspaper. That's about the only way you could spread information back then, or through books, I guess, books and media. You um, had a telegraph system, but that was limited to just a few words and so it wasn't really effective at communicating very much. So, you didn't have the distractions of the phone, of texting, of emailing, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have radio, you didn't have television, you didn't have Netflix, you didn't have YouTube videos, you didn't have Facebook, you didn't have Instagram, you didn't have TikTok, you didn't have any of these things. You didn't have billboards, you know. There's no billboards. Think of all the commercials That you see or hear every day on TV, radio, and other forms of media. Think of all the signs that you see. All the information that's coming into your mind on a daily basis. Think of all the posts that you get just from your phone. I turn them all off. I don't like notifications, but if you have all these notifications coming at you, how how many do you get in a day? We live in an age of information overload. There's just too much information. We can't handle it all and so try to meditate in an age and in a culture like ours and it becomes extremely difficult not impossible, but very difficult I was looking up some statistics this week and what I found is is astounding there are more than 5 billion people using the internet today now there's not even 8 8 billion people on the planet there's like 7.9 billion people but 5 billion of those 7.9 billion people use the internet So that's 63% of the world's total population. And Google processes more than 63,000 searches every single second. Not minute, not hour, not day. 63,000 searches a second. Crazy. Every Every minute of every day, over 4 million YouTube videos are being viewed. 4 million. 2 billion people are active on Facebook every day and 350 million Facebook photos are uploaded every day. So the numbers are staggering, aren't they? We have passed into a completely new generation with a new culture and a new form of relating to people and of receiving information. And with the incredible amount of information that's being generated and shared to us every second of every day, it's no wonder that we are a people that find it very difficult to tune all of this out and just think without distraction on God's truth. But that's what biblical meditation is. It's thinking, dwelling deeply on the truth of God. And you're not going to be able to do that unless you're able to get rid of all of this other information flooding you. You'll never be able to do it. So you're going to have to unplug from TV, radio, phone, internet, email, podcasts, etc., everything, in order to be able to dwell, as we are commanded to do, to dwell or to think on these things. And so I believe biblical meditation is almost a lost art amongst Christians today. I don't think many Christians meditate on the Word of God because of of the culture and the day and age in which we live. You're going to have to fight to be able to meditate on God's Word. Mm -hmm. But if we don't meditate on God's Word, we are the ones that are going to lose out because the Bible tells us that it's extremely important in the Christian life. For example, Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. So the man who meditates on God's law day and night, what are the results from his life? He's like a tree, not planted out in the desert, planted by a stream of water. And his his leaf isn't withering. And whatever he does, he prospers. Soul prosperity. Do you want your life to prosper? Do you want to be fruitful like a tree planted by a stream of water? Well, then biblical meditation is something that you must learn to cultivate in your life. This isn't something that is optional. If you want to be successful in the Christian life, it's, it's absolutely essential. And we already read Joshua one eight, but it says pretty much the same thing Psalm 1 does. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Now, Why have I been speaking about meditating on Scripture? Because Philippians 4.8 does not mention Scripture, does it? It mentions whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, anything of excellence, or worthy of praise. It doesn't mention Scripture. But pray tell, how are you going to know what any of those things are unless you go to the Bible to find out, right? Mm -hmm. How are you going to know what is true unless you go to the Bible to find out what is truth? Mm-hmm. Or what is right or righteous or lovely or beautiful or pure? All those things are found in the Word of God. So we assume that we, by implication. Let's take a few minutes and just look at each of these words in verse 8 and, and meditate a little bit on these words. Mm-hmm. He says whatever is true. Whatever is true. Jesus said in John 17, 17, when he's praying to the Father, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Romans 3, 4, Paul says, Rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 15, 26, Jesus said, When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me." Whatever is true, the Word of God is true, the Father is true, the Son is true, the Spirit is true. So we are to meditate on whatever is true rather than what is false. And the only way to know that is by knowing your your scriptures, knowing the Bible. Secondly, whatever is honorable, and that word honorable means that which inspires reverence or awe, something that is worthy of respect. The Lord himself is honorable. The Lord inspires reverence and awe. The Lord is worthy of respect. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you shall honor me. Proverbs 3, nine, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Jesus said in John 5, the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. So the Lord Jesus and his Father are worthy of our honor. Then he says whatever's right. <clears throat> the word right is talking about whatever is righteous. God himself is the standard of what is right. He alone is righteous. Psalm 11 verse 7. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. Psalm 19:8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Romans 1:17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Romans 2:5 speaks of the righteous judgment of God. So when you go to the word of God to find out what is right, you're going to find that God is righteous. His precepts are righteous, his gospel is righteous, and his judgment is righteous, among many other things. So we are to meditate on that which is right. And then, whatever is pure. That word means chaste or clean. It comes from the same root as the word holy. So it's related to the word holy. It speaks of moral purity, and especially keeping our bodies undefiled by abstaining from sexual sin. That's what this word pure has in mind. In Ephesians 5, verse 3, Paul writes, But immorality, and there he's talking about sexual immorality, or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So whatever is pure, morally pure, we are to dwell on that. And then he says, whatever is lovely. Well, what is lovely? Psalm 84 1, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. And there the psalmist was talking about the place where God dwelt. Whether that was the tabernacle or the temple, it was only lovely because God was there. Or Psalm 135, 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is lovely. The name of God is lovely, beautiful. Or Isaiah 2, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. So the person who brings the gospel, the good news to somebody else, that's lovely. His feet are lovely in the sight of God. And then he says, whatever is of good repute. Now that word means something that deservedly enjoys a good reputation. Whatever is of good repute. Whatever that deservedly enjoys a good reputation. And it made me think of Acts 6.3. Do you remember when the apostles set aside seven men to help the widows with their daily serving of food? They were trying to figure out who to appoint for that task. And in Acts 6.3, they say, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So these men were of good reputation. The church had looked at their lives and they said, These men deserve our respect. In 1 Timothy 3.7, when Paul talks about selecting overseers or elders, he says, that person must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil so we are to dwell on the things that are of good repute and then he says if there is any excellence and that word excellence speaks of moral goodness or moral excellence such as modesty or chastity and Peter uses the term in 2 Peter one five where he says, now for this very reason also, apply all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. So the very first thing Peter says to add to your your faith is this moral excellence. You're putting away sin from your life and you're living a morally excellent life. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, God Himself has moral excellence, and we are to proclaim those excellencies to others. And then He he winds this whole statement down in verse 8 with this, if there's anything worthy of praise. So this speaks of anything praiseworthy in God, or anything praiseworthy in God's people, When you find anything that's worthy of praise, you are to dwell on those things. And and so as I looked at those attributes here in verse 8, true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellence, worthy of praise, all of those attributes describe our God, don't they? Every single one of them. So really, Paul could have said, meditate on God, His excellencies, and the excellencies of His people, because we can reflect some of these excellencies of God in our own lives. So we're to think about those kinds of things. We're to dwell on them. The Puritans made it a practice of meditating on six great things from God's Word. Here are the six. The majesty of God, the severity of sin, the beauty of Christ, the certainty of death, the finality of judgment, and the misery of hell. Now, if we were to think deeply on those six things, that that, that would be enough, really, to last the rest of our lives, and we'd do well if we meditated on those six things. So I want to exhort and urge you this morning to set apart time to meditate on God's word. Obey verse 8 to dwell on these things, you're going to need to choose a time when you're not being bombarded with information, or you this will never happen. I I, I know from practical experience it won't happen. You'll start, you'll try, and you're going to see something on your phone, and it's going to get you. Oh, I better deal with that, I better deal with this. You'll never get around to meditating on God's Word. The, The number one best thing you can do in order to meditate is, is to leave your phone someplace else while you do it. Don't use your phone while you're meditating. Use, use a Bible. Leave your phone in another room with it on vibrate or off <laughs> so it's not always calling your attention. Find a time when you're not interrupted by other members of the family or pets in your home. <laughs> and, and take some time when you're not going to be uh, distracted by TV, internet texting all of those kinds of things so that you can think i'm afraid that if we keep going in the same direction we're going today eventually we're going to have very few people who can really think in our culture you know i mean if you go back 100 years people were deep thinkers in the 1800s just read the speeches of the presidents They would give two hour long uh, speeches, and they'd have debates that were of substance. They weren't just criticizing each other. They would have substantive debates and the people would eat it up and they would listen for hours to these debates And you, you can't even go to a church most times where the, if the preacher goes over 20 minutes people people don't like the sermon because it's too long they can't, they can't fix their minds for that length of the time because they're so used to jumping back and forth and being stimulated so much mentally from these different entertainment venues mm-hmm. so I'm afraid for our culture that we're getting to a place where we're not going to really be able to think deeply anymore and it's because we have too much data bombarding us constantly So I I think we desperately need to to get to a place in our lives where daily we have some solitude, we have some silence, Mm -hmm. we have some time to open up God's Word and just spend our time thinking and dwelling on it. And I would encourage you to do this with a pen and a journal, not just with your brain because you're going to lose your thoughts too quickly. Mm -hmm. At least I do. I I can't think clearly without, without a pen and a piece of paper in front of me. It just doesn't work. I, I can I can grab a thought, and it's gone. But if you want something to stick, you need to you need to write. This is one of the reasons, folks, that we slowed down our Bible reading. We could have read through the Bible in one year, like a lot of plans do. All these different plans get through the Bible in a year. We could have done that, but how much meditation would we have done if we had gone like reading five or six chapters a day? We'd have no time to meditate. So, what we have done is slowed way down. Going, we're going through the Old Testament at two chapters a day. So, if you spend 15 minutes reading those two chapters, let's say, then take another 30 minutes to meditate on the two chapters. You see what I'm saying? Reading is like one dunk of the tea bag. You want to let the tea bag sit, sit there in the hot water. You want the flavor to come out. So that's the first thing Paul commands here in verse 8. It's dwelling on these things. Dwelling. Dwelling. He's thinking, considering, considering over and over. And he ends in verse 9 with his list of six commands with a command to obey. The main driving verb in verse 9, you can probably pick it out. It's practice. Practice these things. Practice them. That word is more than just understand these things. To practice something is to put it into practice. It's to actually do it. Do the thing that you know to do. It's to do what James says in James 1.22. Prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers what does a hearer only do to himself? Or to James, he deludes himself. It means he deceives himself. He thinks that he's a true follower of Christ and he's not. A true follower of Christ is someone who does the word of God. He doesn't just listen to it or hear it. Now this is exactly the same teaching that Jesus Christ gave in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew five, six, and seven, when Jesus comes to draw the Sermon on the Mount to a close, he says in verse 21 of the seventh chapter of Matthew, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus' point there was, it's not enough to say something. Anybody can do that. In fact, there are a lot of people that say, Lord, Lord, and they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of the Father. He doesn't just know it. He doesn't just talk about it. He actually does it. He applies the truth of God's word to his own life. And then Jesus finishes up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. And you know the parable there where he talks about two guys who are building houses. One guy built his house on the rock, Another guy built his house on sand. And there's this great storm that slammed against those two houses. The guy who built his house on the rock, the house stood in the midst of the storm. The guy who built his house on sand, it was demolished. It was washed away. And Jesus there is talking about the final day of judgment. That's the storm that's going to slam against our houses. There's only one difference between those two people that were building their houses in the parable. Each one of them heard the words of Jesus. Jesus, well, I'll read it to you. Okay, so he says in Matthew 7:24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And then in verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. What's the difference between the man whose house was demolished and the man whose house stood when the great storm slammed against it? Action. Action was the only difference. Both of them heard the words of Jesus. And I believe Jesus is talking about hearing the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he's just been preaching to them. Those who hear these words of mine, the, the words I've been telling you in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. He was giving them instructions for how to live as a disciple of his. He says, if you hear them and act on them, you're building your house on the rock and your life is going to stand when God's judgment comes. But if you hear these words of mine and don't act on them, your life is not going to stand on judgment day. You're going to fall on that day. So I would put it like this, obedience to Jesus Christ's teaching is essential, not in order to get saved, but as evidence that you already are, right? Our obedience does not save us, Christ's obedience is what saves us, but if Christ has saved you, your life will show that, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's just, it's a given. You don't love him if you don't keep his commandments. We can say that we do, but Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? thats It, it doesn't make any sense, because the word Lord means master. Why do you call me your master, and then you do your own will? It doesn't make any sense. And I think probably one of the biggest weaknesses and in the the american church today is that we have many many people who call jesus lord lord and they don't do what he says they don't apply the truth of god's word to their life they may attend church they may talk about god but they don't actually do it and so let's not be among those we want our house to stand in the judgment right you want You want to be welcomed into the eternal kingdom of God when when it's time to stand before God. You don't want to be banished. You don't want to hear him say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You practice lawlessness. So, back to Philippians 4, verse 9. Practice, practice, practice these things. Now, what are the things we are to practice? Let's back up. First of all, the things you've learned. Practice the things you've learned. Paul's referring to the truths that he and others had taught the Philippian believers. This would be the great doctrinal and moral truths of the Christian faith. The Philippians would have learned from Paul about the virgin birth of Jesus, his sinless life, and his miracles. They would have learned about the deity, the Godhood, the Godship of, of Jesus Christ. About the triune nature of God, of the personality of the Holy Spirit. It would have learned that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It would have learned that salvation is not of works. It would have learned of God's eternal election of his people. It would have learned of his everlasting love for them. It would have learned that he had adopted them into his family and redeemed them by Christ's blood, and justified them by his grace, and reconciled them to himself, and released them from his wrath, and rescued them from the kingdom of darkness, and freed them from the dominion of sin. So these are all great doctrinal truths that these Philippians would have learned. Paul would have taught them these things. But in addition to that, there are moral truths that they have learned. They had learned that their duty was to be witnesses to everyone of the truth and power of the gospel and to make disciples of all the nations. They had learned that they must love one another, that they must forsake all sin, that they must deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live righteously, soberly, and godly in this present age. So there's many things that they had learned that Paul says, "Okay, now practice them. Do them. Put them into practice. But secondly, the things you've received, the things you've learned and the things you've received. And there's a difference between learning something and receiving something. I can learn many things that I don't actually make my own or appropriate to myself. I can learn that someone's offering me a gift but never received the gift. One has to do with the mind and the second one has to do with the will making a choice to embrace that truth that you have learned. So you can learn a truth, but never do anything with it, never receive that truth. For example, you can know that salvation is by grace, in Christ, or grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can learn that information, but that doesn't mean you've received the gift of eternal life. To receive that truth and depend on it and rely on it and trust in it is different than just learning that truth. So receiving it goes beyond just the mind and it impacts the will. So I can learn the truth that I must make disciples of all the nations, right? That God has called me to make disciples, but knowing that truth is not practicing that truth. It's not doing that truth. So we must must be thinking and praying and asking God to show us how we can actually put into practice the things that he's taught us and to make practical steps to do it and then he says and the things that you have heard and seen in me the things you've heard and seen in me we're going to practice those things now by the things you've heard and seen in me uh, Paul's pointing to his own example here what are the things that you've heard in me and seen in me? So. Paul had, had lived with the Philippians for a period of time. He was there when the church was planted. Remember when the Philippian jailer was converted in his household and Lydia and her household? But Paul was right there doing the ministering. So these, these young believers had watched Paul. They had seen Paul's life. They'd heard him teach, they'd heard him preach, but they'd also seen how he lived. They saw how he invested his time They watched how he interacted with other people. They saw him love the brethren. They watched him teach them against false teachers. They had seen him give selflessly to minister to the church and to minister to the lost. And they had watched his life to see whether he was a humble man or a proud man, a selfish man or a selfless man. And this isn't the first time that Paul had called the Philippians to follow his example because back in chapter 3, in verse 17, He says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So the things you've heard in me and seen in me, practice these things. Follow my example. So when you boil all this down, verse 9, is teaching us: it's not enough to know. We must do. it, And if we fail to do, we are only deluding ourselves. God is a deliverer, but we are. We are self-assured that we are true disciples when in fact we're not doing what Jesus said. How can we call him Lord if we're not willing to do what he said? So this is a sobering passage when you consider it. But notice that there's a promise connected to our obedience in verse 9. There were four commands given in verses 4 through 6, and then there's a promise connected to those first four commands. The commands are to rejoice, to be humble, to be believing, and to be prayerful. And the, the promise was the peace of God is going to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Then there's two more commands. Meditate on truth and obey the truth and there's another promise that follows that one and this one is not the peace of God. It's the God of peace. The God of peace will be with you. Isn't that beautiful? So we have the promise of the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds and now we have the promise which is even more precious promise than that. The God of peace is going to be with you so the god of peace goes beyond just giving you some peace when you need it but giving you anything you need when you need it Mm -hmm. because he's the god of peace not just the peace of God. the god of peace is going to be with you so you see how important it is to practice these things the promise of the god of peace being with you is connected to you practicing these things the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So if you are going to live in disobedience, I don't think you can put, you can claim this promise. It's a conditional promise. The, the promise is for a person who's willing to put the, will, the Word of God into practice in his own life. He can be assured that the God of peace is going to be with him. So my sense, this is a, a, a real sobering a serious passage. And this is the way Paul really ends the teaching portion of his letter. In verse 9, you must obey, you must practice the word of God. So I want to leave you this morning with two big ideas. Okay? These two big ideas. You must make time regularly and consistently to meditate on God's word. Do not think of this as something that you can get by without or that it's sort of optional, like uh, air conditioning on your car, you can take it or leave it. You'd rather have it, but you can get by without it. Meditation is essential if you're going to live out the Christian life. And so I want to challenge all of you to take some time every day when you can think on truth. A quiet time. That's why people call their devotional time their quiet time. They're getting rid of all of the noise in their life so that they can really think about the things that are essential. The problem is we've got so much trivial data bombarding us that we no longer are able to think about the the eternal and the crucial things of life. And that's what we have here, the, the things that are eternal and crucial. So that's the first thing. Make time regularly and consistently to meditate on God's Word. And then secondly, I want to leave you with this idea. We must practice the things we see in God's Word. We've got to do them. Of course, that's not easily done, is it? There are some things that we find very difficult to do from God's Word. That's why we need to go to the Lord in prayer. That's why we have to depend on Him. That's why we need to ask Him to help us with the things that we have difficulty doing. But God will be faithful. That's what he says here, God of peace will be with you. You step out in faith to do, to practice these things. God of peace will be with you. His power will enable you. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we look to you right now to impress upon us the importance of meditation and obedience in the Christian life. We pray, Lord, tomorrow morning when we get up that these thoughts will not have just jumped out of our minds and and we no longer find them compelling. We pray that tomorrow morning these two truths will just be as compelling as right now when we're really thinking about them. So give special grace to all of us who hear these truths from Philippians 4 today. Give us grace, Lord, to put them into practice, I pray in Jesus' name. Yeah.